Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In the latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event from Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival 2019 for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Good evening, and welcome to Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. I'm Debo Amon, Literature Programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Nikki Giovanni in Conversation. We're really excited to be presenting this event as part of Southbank Centre's London Literature and Poetry International Festivals. It seems obvious to say Nikki Giovanni is one of our greatest living poets, educators and activists. With a career that has spanned more than 50 years, it also seems obvious to say that she has made and continues to make an indelible mark on the world. But sometimes things that are obvious, things are obvious because they are true. And very few people are, are, are as well acquainted with the truth as Giovanni. From poems like Reflections on April 4th, 1968, to Nikki Rosa, Ego Tripping to the self-evident poem, Giovanni has spent a career revealing the truth to us. So it's more than an honour to have her here with us today. Chairing tonight's event is British Ghanaian writer from South East London, Bridget Minamore. Minamore is a poet, critic and dramaturg and journalist writing for The Guardian. She was chosen as one of Speaking Volume's 40 stars of Black British literature and has read her work internationally and is the co-lead tutor for Roundhouse Poetry Collective. Titanic, published by Outspoken Press, is her debut pamphlet of poems on modern love and loss and was published in May 2016. Now, please join me in welcoming Nikki Giovanni and Bridget Minamore. I'm uh, told by my folks who are here, behave yourself, (laughs) which was silly because I never do. (laughs) And I need to share with you just just one teeny tiny thing. I'm a nervous individual and I'm not friendly. And (laughs) so any combination of me standing with that much space in my back makes me very nervous. I'm an old civil rights person. (laughs) And on a rainy day in Philadelphia, in the old days, it's Pennsylvania, in the old days, before Philadelphia had a real airport, and you just had the propeller planes, I was going to State Park in in Pennsylvania, and I walked in, and I sat down because I don't like my back So the first thing I do in any room is I find out where my back should be. And I knew my back should be over here because that's gonna be, and I thought, fine, I walked over. I can actually sleep any place. I can actually stand here. And if I'm quiet for a few minutes, I can nod off. It's one of God's gifts to me. (laughs) And I sat down and I just happened to look over as one always looks at, you always have to know who's around you. And I said, damn. That woman looks like Rosa Parks. (laughs) And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I put my my glasses on. I said, wow, that's Rosa Parks. She didn't travel alone. And so her niece was there, and Mrs. Parks was there, and there was a white guy just sitting there. And I'm not against white people. It's not personal. But (laughs) I've got to meet her. I mean, that was obvious. It was obvious that somebody had to move. 
Now I have. <laughs> I have my faults, but I knew that I could not move that black woman. I'm not a fool. So <laughs> that meant that that white man had to move. I could go over to him and say, excuse me, sir, you're sitting next to a cultural icon and I'd like to have your seat, please. Him being white would all of a sudden know I've got something important and he wouldn't move. Or you could do that thing that we called Bogard. I don't know if you know Bogard. He looked up, he said, what? I said, you gonna move or what? <laughs> and he said he was sorry and got up and moved, which is what he was supposed to do. <laughs> it's the truth. And I said, Ms. Parks, my name is Nikki Giovanni, it's such a pleasure. And she said to me, which I shall never forget, oh, baby, black love is black wealth. And it just, <laughs> oh, it just hit it, it, my heart. It was just like, oh, my God, she's read my poems. And we became friends, and we became friends ever since. One of the things that I wanted to read, one of the poems I wanted to read was the poem that I did for uh, Rosa Parks uh, at, at her, uh, let me see if I can find it, at her birthday, of course, she's, she's sitting in heaven now, and it's called simply Rosa Parks. This is for the Pullman Porters, who organized when people said they couldn't and carried the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender to black Americans in the South so that they would know they were not alone. This is for the Pullman Porters, who helped Thurgood Marshall go south, then come back north to fight the fight that resulted in Brown versus the Board of Education. Because even though Kansas is west, and even though Topeka is the birthplace of Gwendolyn Brooks, who wrote the powerful, the Chicago Defender sends a man to Little Rock, it was the Pullman Porters who whispered to the traveling men, both the blues men and the race men, so that they would know what was going on. This is for the Pullman Porters, who smiled as if they were happy and laughed like they were tickled when some people arrived on the bus, and who silently rejoiced in 1954 when the Supreme Court announced a 9-0 decision that separate is inherently unequal. This is for the Pullman Porters who smiled and welcomed a 14-year-old boy onto their train in 1955. They noticed his slight limp that he tried to disguise with a doo-wop walk. They noticed his stutter and probably understood why his mother wanted him out of Chicago during the summer when school was out. 14-year-old black boys with limps and stutters are apt to try to prove themselves in dangerous ways when mothers aren't around to look after them. So this is for the Pullman Porters who looked over that 14-year-old while the train rolled the reverse of the Blues Highway from Chicago to St. Louis to Memphis to Mississippi. This is for the men who kept him safe. And if Emmett Till had been able to stay on that train all summer, he would have probably grown a bit of a paunch, certainly lost his hair, probably have worn bifocals and bounced his grandchildren on his knee, telling them, telling them about his summer riding the rails. But he had to get off that train and ended up in Money, Mississippi, and was horribly, brutally, inexcusably, and unacceptably murdered. This is for the Pullman Porters, who, when the sheriff was trying to get that body secretly buried, got Emmett's body on the northbound train, got his body home to Chicago, where his mother said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And this is for all the mothers who cried. And this is for all the people who said, never again. 
And this is about Rosa Parks, whose feet were not so tired. It had been, after all, an ordinary day until the bus driver gave her the opportunity to make history. This is about Mrs. Rosa Parks from, from Montgomery, Alabama, who was, also, who was also field secretary of the NAACP. This is about the moment Rosa Parks shouldered her cross, put her worldly goods aside, and was willing to sacrifice her life so that the young man from Money, Mississippi, would, who would have been so well protected by the Pullman Porters, would not have died in vain. When Mrs. Parks said no, a passionate movement was begun. No longer would there be a reliance on the law. There was a higher law. When Mrs. Parks brought that light of hers to expose the evil of the system, the sun came and rested on her shoulders, bringing the heat and light of truth. Others would follow Mrs. Parks. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't remember your own poetry. Others would follow Mrs. Parks. Others would, would follow Mrs. Parks. Four young men in Greensboro, North Carolina would also say no. Great voices would be raised, singing the praises of God and exhorting us to forgive those who trespassed against us. But this, is, but this, is, this was the Pullman Porters who safely got Emmett to his granduncle, and it was Mrs. Rosa Parks who could not stand that death. And in not being able to stand it, she sat back down. I get over being nervous in a few minutes. It's just love. It won't sweeten your coffee or ice your tea. It won't grill your steak or bake, bake your crusty bread. It certainly won't pour your olive oil over your shredded Parmigiana Reggiana leathers. It might make you laugh. It's just love. It won't rub your feet or your back. It won't tassel your hair or paint your fingernails red. It might make you want red fingernails, though. It's only love. It has no coupon value, though it does not expire. Just me, just you, yeah. Good for nothing love. Throw it away when you get tired of it. <laughs> I'm always falling in love. It's, it's, it's a good idea. You, you fall in love, and then you get rid of them, and then you fall in love again. It, it, it goes. I'm a space freak, and uh, I need to share that. The one thing that, uh, that I've always wanted, actually, was to be able to go into space. I, I was able, uh, several years ago, now, well, several decades now, I'm 76, I was able to go on the SST, on the supersonic transport, actually from London back to uh, New York, because a, a friend of mine had died, and I wanted to be there at her funeral. And the supersonic SST goes up 70,000 feet, for those of you who don't know it. And at 70,000 feet, you can see the curve of the Earth. And I always wanted to be able to go just a little bit higher. I want to go to space station or something like that. And I know Charles Bolden, who was the head of NASA, and I told him, and I laughed about it, but it was nonetheless true. I said, you know, when Ronald, when, not Ronald Reagan, but that other fool, when Trump finds out... <laughs> When Donald Trump finds out you're colored, he's going to fire you, which is exactly what happened why NASA doesn't have a black head of NASA right now. But I always did want to, I always wanted to go into space. I thought it was great. He, Dr. Bolden said to me, you know, Nikki, I could take you to space. You could do that, but I couldn't bring you back. And I said, why? And he said, because I, I've had cancer. I, I never figured that, that, I don't know that verb. 
I don't know if I had had it or did have it or do it, but me and cancer are, are getting along. You never see an ad with me saying, I'm fighting cancer and I'm gonna win, none of that shit. I live, For me, cancer is something you live with, and we get along. Every morning I wake up, hey, cancer, how you doing? You say, I'm doing okay this morning, Nikki. And we've made it one more day, and that's all I care about. But I can't go into space, well, I can go into space, but I can't come back because uh, my, my, my uh, left lung and my right breast have been removed, and then my organs would move. And, and so he said, well, if I can take you into space, but if I bring you back, your organs will move and it'll kill you. And I said, Charles, I don't know how to tell you this. And maybe some of you don't understand. <laughs> Let me share. If you were born, you're going to die. <laughs> Unless you're Queen Elizabeth, of course. She is. Uh... <laughs> Elizabeth put her call and she ain't going to die. She, she spoke to God. No, I ain't dying. This, and God has said, okay, Elizabeth, stay. And that's it. But everybody else <laughs> is going to die. <laughs> And I thought, wouldn't that be really just cool? Because I'm 76 now, and maybe by the time I'm 80, because I just want to give myself a few more years, and when I'm 80, I go up and I sit on the space station for a couple of years, because we don't have any, any artists in space. We don't have any poets in space. And I get to say what I've seen. I'm going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to die. And I want to just open the door and just let me out. And then you all could look out on a clear night, if there ever is a clear night in London, which would be rare. <laughs> and you'll just look out and you'll see me go and say, there goes Nikki, and, <laughs> and you'll smile at me. <laughs> it's so refreshing hearing how much you talk about children's literature and children's writing and books for children. I feel like so often um, there's this weird misconception that uh, literature for children isn't as isn't as highbrow as as literature for adults. But you know, you've always written for young people. And I think when I was a teenager and I first discovered your work, uh, seeing that you weren't dumbing anything down for a younger audience was really important in how much I connected with your writing. Have you have you always wanted to write for children? Have you always? Oh, no, I, I I assume the children are not particularly dumb. Mm. No, I do. I mean, if you read my work, it, it can go a lot of different ways. Some of it, they won't, They probably wouldn't understand if somebody said, you said you were going to write a poem about Rosa Parks, but it started with, this is for the Pullman Porters. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's going to go because without the Pullman Porters, we don't get the movement. And so some kid might say, well, I don't understand, and they have to go be a little bit older to follow some of it. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that children are smart. And one of the things that I, I, I definitely hate is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I have ruined Rudolph for all of my students. It's prejudice. They, they were laughing at Rudolph because he was different. They didn't want to play with him, didn't want to talk with him. Santa and Mrs. Santa knew that Rudolph was there by himself. Nobody went out to say, you know, come on, baby, you know, you can sit here. No, they didn't give a damn until all of a sudden they needed something. Mm. <laughs> and I'm a black American. If I had been Rudolph, I'd tell him to kiss my red-nosed ass. <laughs> That's the truth. But I lived in the country that when they needed somebody to beat the, the to outrun the Germans, they called Jesse Owens, mm -hmm. though they wouldn't let him have a drink of water. When they needed somebody to meet Max Schelling, they called Joe Lewis. So you get sick of that, because if you're not gonna talk to me now, don't talk to me then. And so I hate Rudolph, and I hate... <laughs> <laughs> 
that, that, and we teach kids that, and then we wonder, why are the kids now being bullies? Hell, they've been singing that song for God knows when. Also, I hate Thanksgiving, by the way, before you ask. Oh, <laughs> No, I do. Well, well, any president, but especially this one, to have the nerve to say he's gonna forgive a turkey. What did the turkey do? But it's not that, it's that you've got these two turkeys and they've been friends, and you bring them out, and the turkeys know, okay, this is, this is not gonna end well. And you say to one, we're gonna kill you. Well, he knows what's gonna happen. It's not that turkey, it's this one that's gonna say, but who do I talk to? Who do I snuggle up with when I'm cold? It's the turkey that lives. And all of us know that because we've lost someone. And if you've lost someone, it's not the person who died because they knew they were dying. It was the person who lived. We're the ones that have to be alone. And somehow or another, the president thinks that should be on television. And especially Donald Trump. Of the three things there, I can tell you whose head I'd rather cut off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I, I promised Carla I would be good. Okay. <laughs> you, you just mentioned, you know, all of us losing someone in such a beautiful way. And I was reading parts of your book, A Good Cry, and uh, thinking about how little, like, how, how often, as whether you're a black woman or a black writer, or maybe it's just me, I don't cry enough. And, and you go into that in the book, and you, and you, and you talk um, a lot about grief. Uh, and how, you know, sometimes we just need to do that. Has that always been easy? Or is it something you had to learn? No, I think uh, for me, I had to uh, learn it. I, I, was, I had a, a seizure now, uh, three years ago. And my doctor, by the way, is, is good looking, thank God. That's why I put up with him. And, <laughs> and Gregory, you know, I don't know about anybody else, it's not personal. But if you're a black woman and you go to a doctor, the first thing he's gonna say is you eat too much salt. I don't give a damn what it is. You eat too much salt. I mean, that's, that's what you have to hear, no matter what's wrong with you. And so Gregory is like, you know, you need to change your diet. I said, Gregory, I understand what my problem is. I never learned to cry because I held everything in. My parents used to fight. I mean, they didn't fight. My father used to beat my mother. And you hold things in, you hold things in. And I finally had the seizure. And I said, Gregory, I've given you a gift. You should accept it. And he said, well, what have you given me? I said, I have given you the Nikki. Because now when somebody comes in here that hasn't cried, that you say you had a seizure, they didn't have a seizure. They needed to learn to cry. Let's call it the Nikki. And you can write about it, and you can make a lot of money. And I'm, don't then I make? And then when somebody says, how are you feeling today? He said, girl, I had the Nikki. <laughs> don't you think that would? Yeah. It would work for me. But uh, learning to cry is a skill. I think that men. Learn, need to learn to cry. Because we're always on men like that, you know, a man doesn't cry. And of course not, he beats his wife. Learn to cry, damn it, and, and leave the rest of us alone. <laughs> and, I mean, I wasn't actually gonna ask you this, but when we were talking backstage, I was just kind of struck by how often you talk about death and how many jokes you make around dying and about death. Is it, is it just like whatever, or do you...? Well, you know you're going to die. I mean, that, that's... It's really amazing. And I, I do laugh at your queen, because I do think whoever she had to talk to, <laughs> she, she ain't going to die. And one day, Charles would just say, no, Mom, this is it, and just put her in. <laughs> and that'll be it. I'm king now, to hell with you. But that, that's about the only way that's going to happen. But, uh, no, it, it, 
you can't, uh, you know, you're sad. And again, mm. speaking of death, we, we were looking at the turkeys. And the turkeys, by the way, some of you may not know, if you're watching American Thanksgiving, the turkey who lives it comes to Virginia Tech where I teach. And so when you're driving along 460, the turkeys are, if you're driving this, the turkeys are on the right side, they're there. And I'm one of those people that looks at, I look at everything, I, I, I don't even know how to, and I was just thinking how sad the turkeys must be that they have all, maybe they have, maybe they've formed a community, maybe they found a way to find, to find each other. But they are the ones who are left, and I, I do know that it's more difficult to be left than to, to have to go. I do know that. And I know that probably some of us have, have lost people, and some of us are thinking, you know, mama was in pain. But, but even, uh, we just recently, of course, uh, saw the transition of Toni Morrison, who was great, and who was, was a friend of mine. And there's just no question of missing her. And the first couple of, of, of weeks with this, without thinking, because I went out and bought fish. Tony likes uh, pork, like, she liked porgies. And without thinking, you know, you're gonna pick up, I'm, I'm frying some pork, you know. And then you realize, no, she's, she's not gonna be on the other end. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you, you have someone that you care about who's in such pain. And, and she was in quite a bit. And, and so you think, well, that's this transition. I think death is probably, a word that I'm trying to work out. It, it, nobody really dies. There is always a transition. And we are, as long as there's earth, we're gonna, we're gonna change. And some of us are gonna become whatever. I, I know a little girl, uh, former student of mine has a daughter, and uh, she has difficulty. And we were having lunch, because it, it's a longer story that I won't go through, but we were having lunch one day, Chinese restaurant, and she was just trying, I was just listening, and she was trying to talk, and she was saying, you know, I'm just nothing, Aunt Nikki, I'm just nothing but a weed. And it, it really was like, wait a minute, what does that mean? You're 13 year old, what do you mean you're just a weed? She said, I'm just a weed. She said, I'm no good. I said, first of all, you, don't, you can't tell me what a weed is because everything is a weed. I mean, basil is a weed, tarragon is a weed. I mean, everything is a weed. And the rest of it is doing some good for somebody. So how can you, how can you think that to be a weed is to not be significant? It's not important. I don't know who said what to her, and I really hate whoever did say that to that child to make her feel like it's not that she's a weed, but that she's nothing. And I said that's ridiculous. I write her, but then I write a murderer too. So what the hell? You know, I write a lot of people, but I do write her because it worries me that she thinks. She's nothing, and she thinks that she's just going to be cut down and thrown away. I said, it's not true. You don't even know. You haven't even grown. You haven't blossomed. You're... But all of us are, and I wear these earrings that you see. My mother gave these to me, and I love them. And one of the reasons I like diamonds, and you can see they're small because we're poor people. We're not, we're not rich people. We're poor people. So when Mommy bought them, you can see it took a lot for her to be able to buy these diamonds. But then I was thinking about that because I had a friend, Walter Leonard, who was the president of Fisk, who was a good friend of mine. Walter died. And when he did, I was trying to, his wife Betty called me and said, would, would you write something? And the answer to that is, of course, you know, I'm sad too about losing Walter. And then I realized that Walter's gonna go and transition. 
and somebody is going to one day find what was Walter and polish it and put it in a jewel and somebody will wear it never knowing that this is Walter who we loved. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably true of many of us who have whatever you've got. This was somebody who was loved by somebody and that's why you picked it and not something else. You know, we have to think about these things. Yeah. Why space? Why are you so interested in space? Oh, I love space. Why do I love space? Yeah. Oh, my. It, one, we're only third planet from Yellow Sun. I've always loved space. And my sister and I shared a bedroom, and her name is Gary Ann. And Gary had, and she, she was older. She's three years older. So her, she picked which side of the room. She wanted the side next to the wall, and that left me with the side next to the window. And I don't know, but I used to just look out and you'd see the stars. And I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to go? I mean, I just love space, but I, I know, and, and this I do know, and, and, and I'll get quoted on it, you know, in, in 25, you know, 70 or something. I know that the only people who are capable of really functioning in space are black American women because we function with everybody. And somebody said, well, if you all go into space, you know, you, you know the Martians or something will rape you. I said, hell, we've been in America. We, we can do whatever it is, and if we get pregnant by the Martians who raped us, we'll do what we did with the other people who raped us. We'll have it, and we'll name it, and we'll love it. And we're the only people that can go into space with love, because everybody else has, has, has some kind of thing that they want. We will go with a smile, and we will find a song to sing. So I know that space has to be for black women, and that's, that's one of our responsibilities, is to take the time to go and find out what else is in this galaxy of, of, uh, of the yellow sun. What else is out there? Nobody is, 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 is going to find out but black women. That's the truth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I was trying to think about when I first read your work and how I discovered it. And I felt a little bit embarrassed by this, but I feel like I can own it. Um, I think, no, I know. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, you know, you were name-checked in a Kanye West song. And I'm pretty sure with you, my Angelou, song called Hey Mama 2005. And I was like, who's this? And Googled or looked up in a library or something and discovered your work. And one of the best things about discovering you that way is finding out how much you also have uh, so, talked about rap and talked about hip-hop and been a fan of rap and hip-hop. And I just wanted to know who you're listening to, if you're listening to anyone right now. You wanted to know my... If you're, who you're listening to, if you're listening to any rappers right now. I, uh, I like the rappers and, and Thug Life. And I really, uh, you know, Pac, I really love... No, I've got to put... I've, I had to have that done, yeah. And... Uh, I felt so sorry for Afeni when, when Pac died. That's in a book I'm trying to, I don't know if sell is the word, because I, it's not the money, it's I want the book to come. I'm, I'm working on a book hmm. that celebrates black, really black boys, essentially. But uh, what it's called is, for those of us who know our spiritual standing, in the need of prayer. And if there's anybody on planet Earth right now standing in the need of prayer, it's black American men. And a friend of mine, uh, Emily Calvos, who I know, and I hired her to do the cover. And the cover is Trayvon Martin. You remember Trayvon with the, with the hood? And Trayvon is carrying a book, which I, I did want. I told her she could pick any book. And the book she picked was The New Negro. Mm -hmm. And what's the problem with this book? 
the problem is I'm celebrating one of its three poems coming together. One of the poems is the March on is is Louis Farrakhan's March on Washington. One of the things that's in there is the Central Park Five, mm -hmm. and the problem with that is that and and this is not personal. It's just what's in my poem and what is the truth is that they accuse those boys of rape, and Donald Trump purchased a page to say that it should be executed. And so what the offer came to me was, if you'll just take that rape and that part of the poem out, we can publish the book. And I said, but if we take that rape and that part out, you can have my heart. You know, tell me what else you want of mine, because that ain't going to happen which it isn't, so I've been fighting for that. I may lose, but I'm fighting for that. But the other part is I want my cover, and the cover is Trayvon holding the new Negro, but we have a gun, and we have, uh, and, and you'll excuse me, but we have the white skin of a policeman. You can see it's a policeman. And nobody likes that but me. So my editor has been, <laughs> that's who's been shooting boys down in the back. So quite naturally, they too are standing in the need of prayer. And so everybody's, well, we could, we, let, let, let's look at something else. And I said, you know, let me try this slow. You know how you talk to people and maybe I talk fast or something? I said, let me, let me try this slow. This is not going to change. Why don't you do it my way? It's so basic. And so right now, I'm losing it. If right now I have a heart attack and fall, that book will come out. You, you see what I'm saying? And I know that. I just don't want to have a heart attack right now. So <laughs> I think that they should do it. That book should come out. The first poem is that March. The second is Tupac. I did Tupac with the last day of his life. And sort of like the Last Supper. That I just, you know how the, and Jesus standing, well, I know that Pac is not Jesus, I'm not a fool, but I wanted to do that one day. And of course, at the end, when he gets into the car, as you know, those of you, he gets into the car because he's over watching Mike Tyson fight, and he doesn't want to sit in the front, and Suge Knight says, oh, sit in the front, you're a star. For those of you who know Suge, you know where that's going. And so we have, we have the door. When the door slams, I have the gun come out. So you see the problem there. And then the last poem, because it's a trilogy, and the last one is, When My Phone Trembles. Because I am a mother of the son. Some of us are mothers of son. Not that we're not worried about our daughters, because you have to worry about anybody these days. You have to worry about your kindergarten these days. But the last one, the last poem is, When My Phone Trembles After Midnight. Because the phone never rings after midnight, except with bad news. And I have the mother in this poem, as she is picking up the phone, she puts her glasses on because she knows whatever it is she needs, she needs to see, and she says a prayer. And I like it so much, and I think it's so good, and everybody said, well, you know, it's kind of harsh. No, I, I mean, I can tell all of them MFs what's harsh. <laughs> this is not harsh. I'm just an old woman celebrating what black men are going through, and, and this is something black men are going through. This is not something we go through it's not that white, not that black women don't get killed. Sandra, uh, what's her name? Got people get killed. I'm not saying that, but this is something that every time your son, or your husband, or your lover, or whatever it is, leaves you, you don't know if you'll see him again, and that has to worry you because if we go back until the 50s and the 20s, 20s up to the 50s or 60s, 
every time he left you, 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 you could think about, I'm gonna have to cut him down from a tree. It's, it's, the same, it's the same thing. And what everybody wants you to think is, oh, we don't do that anymore, but they do. And if you don't want, if you don't want to be proud of it, you know, that's one reason. If you're going to be a Klansman, you have to take your hat off. And that, that, that we have done. You know, now the Klan does have to take his hat off. Well, we're not Klansmen. We're, we're, we're just supremacists. This is our heritage. The only heritage you have. Can, can you imagine that the only thing you have to give to the world is the color of your skin? You can't sing. You can't dance. You don't know how to farm. The only thing you have is that you're white and you get a couple of other white people who say, yeah, we're the best. That is so sad. You talk about sad, that is so sad. <laughs> white men deserve more than that. And there's no black person on God's earth who wakes up and says, I wish I was Donald Trump. There's not. And you don't see us laying on sheets of ice saying, Lord, make me whiter. But you see black, white people go, Lord, make me darker. Cool. Um, thank you. I just thought I'd mention it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, we have come to the end of our time. I know, I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to just end on, I was reading all your work this week, um, and I read a poem called Dreams, and it ends with the words, I became more sensible and decided I would settle down and just become a sweet inspiration. Um, and so maybe just a little mini question. Do you think you've settled down? Because I feel like all of us here uh, agree that you are an inspiration to so many of us. So thank you so much for all you do. But yeah, do you feel like you've settled down? I, I think I'm settled down, don't you? I think, oh. <laughs> and I think that what's really nice, at least for me, mm. is being older, you put things together still. See, my see, you don't want to start because we run out. My generation fought segregation and we won. We have taken segregation away. We've produced a generation of what has to be considered non-segregation, which has nothing to do with racism. And this is what the youngsters have to understand, that we did our job. We really did. I, I believe that. We took segregation away, so you don't see colored waiting room, colored none of that. And what you're living in is a world of non-segregation. And what you maybe thought you were gonna be living in is a world of non-racism. So you're still being surprised that you're running into these fascists, and you're thinking that it's something that you've done. And I think uh, somebody else said it, and I think it's the most wonderful thing I heard. If you don't see the face of the devil, it's cause you're running with him. And it made sense to me. So you have to just keep it in mind. You always have to know this is evil. It may not, you may not always change it. But what I like about the world is that we didn't try to change the world. We made sure that the world didn't change us. And that's what, your, that's what this generation has to know that whatever craziness you see, it's not your fault. And you say, well, I voted or whatever. You, and by the way, you must vote if you're an American, you must vote. And it won't matter because they're cheating, because the voting machines are, are, are rigged. But you go because you don't want those son of a bitches to think you're scared of them. Not because you are impressing them, but because you're impressing yourself.
And that's what my generation taught us. That's what we did. We, we didn't go out and, 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 and have these sit-ins. We didn't go out and cross bridges. We didn't go out and get beaten and arrested to show white people that we weren't afraid. We did it to show ourselves. And that's what you have to keep in mind. Who is your audience? You are your audience. You do your life for yourself. That's what you have to keep in mind. And then you'll get good sex and you'll be happy. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Southbank Centre Books podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.